All right, well, this morning we are going to look at a passage, a passage, excuse me, uh, from Luke chapter 19. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. But before we get going with that, I wanted to share a little story with you. You can get to know me a little bit and it helps to set up the message. When I was a sophomore in Bible college, or by the time I was a sophomore in Bible college, I didn't have a lot of friends. Now, I wasn't wandering around asking people to be my mother or anything like that, and it wasn't because that nobody liked me or I didn't like them or whatever. I simply lived about 20, 25 miles away from campus, and I just, I didn't have the opportunity to get really plugged in to all of the student life stuff that was going on. And that went on, like I said, through my my sophomore year until one of my professors invited me with his family to go to Montana for a week. He was from the Bozeman area, and he spends about four weeks over there every year, and they do all kinds of really fun stuff. I had never been, so he invited me, and I accepted. And let me tell you, my life changed at that point. It was, it was a lot of fun. As soon as he invited me and I accepted, we started getting together planning this out. Obviously, I didn't know what to plan for. I was just there listening to what we were going to do. But as he planned, I got more and more excited And I finally got to Montana. I was able to get there, and we did just about everything, I think, that we had on that itinerary. We went to Virginia City, which is an old west town, where uh, there's a vaudeville act. Every, Every summer, they've got a vaudeville act going on there that is very funny. We got to see that. I got kissed during that act, and I turned beet red. Lots of fun. We went and saw the grave markers of five outlaws who all got hanged on the same day. And if you're a history buff, that's kind of cool stuff. We got to go to the uh, Lewis and Clark Caverns, stalactites, stalagmites, underground lakes. Beautiful. We got to go fishing and camping. We got to go hiking. I, I caught only two fish on the whole trip. But on that trip, I did learn how to fly fish. And it was fun. We went to Yellowstone, and even though we spent only one day there, my professor, Rick Lewis, his brother, actually gave me a tour of Yellowstone. He knows Yellowstone really well. So I got to see Old Faithful and a lot of the other stuff there, and then some stuff that a lot of people don't even think about checking out. I got to see bison, and I got to see a grizzly bear. It was so much fun. I will never, ever, ever forget that trip. But what made that trip really so much fun was the relationship that I had. The relationship that I was building with my professor. After that trip, I actually became an honorary member of the Lewis family. I got to be friends with their kids. We continued to hang out and have barbecues and go to movies, play board games, just sit and drink coffee and talk about life, sharing our hopes and fears our successes and our failures, challenging one another. And on more than one occasion, Rick challenged me when I needed to be challenged. We have all experienced those kinds of relationships. Relationships that have impacted us, whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with another family member, a favorite uncle who teaches you how to throw a baseball. Whether it was your mom out of sheer necessity teaching you how to cook because if you were left alone with your dad, he was going to cook you scrambled eggs and toast three times a day. That was my experience. Maybe for you it was a sports team where you started, you signed up and you started hanging out together for this event on the field. But shortly thereafter, 
this relationship began to grow with one or more of your teammates where you began to feed into each other's lives, building each other up. We've all had these experiences. We've all been defined by some degree, by some significant relationships in our lives. And I use the word defined on purpose because that's the power relationships have. They can define us. Uh, Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. This is how God has created us, to feed into each other, to build each other up, to become more than we could possibly be on our own. We've all here been defined by a relationship. If you are a father, part of your identity is dad. If you're a wife, part of your identity is wife. If you're a son or a daughter, part of your identity is son or daughter. These relationships do define us. But what would happen if all of a sudden, one or more of these significant relationships were to go away, they were to evaporate? What would happen if your family came up to you and said, sorry, you messed up too much, you're out. What would happen if your sports team said, sorry, you've missed too many goals, you struck out too many times, this relationship is over. Would your life be the same without those significant relationships? Think about that for a minute. No, your life wouldn't be the same. Because, yeah, you're going to miss out on some, on some skills, whether relational or activity-based, but more than that, the richness of your life is going to be greatly diminished. Because you're not going to have that relationship to inform who you are and to challenge you to be more than you otherwise would be. Now, what if I told you there was one relationship that trumped all of these relationships? Not that these other relationships aren't important, but what if this one was bigger than all of those other relationships, and in fact, it informed, it actually defined all of those other relationships? What if I told you this one relationship was what we were all created for? And what if I told you this relationship was available right now? Here's the big idea this morning, if you're taking notes. God wants you to be defined by your relationship with him. God wants you to be defined by your relationship with him. As I said, this passage we're going to be looking at in Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, is one of my favorites in the Bible. And because, it's because Jesus does some pretty remarkable things here. It's, it's not water into wine or anything like that, but it's how he interacts with a certain individual. So let's pick it up in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. 
All right, here's the first thing that we need to understand about this big idea this morning, about God wanting us to be defined by our relationship with him. The first thing we need to understand is this. We tend to be defined by what we want. We tend to define ourselves by the things that we pursue. That is the human condition. There's nobody here in this room who's exempt from that. Has, does anybody know who Ted Williams, the Hall of Fame baseball player for the Boston Red Sox, was? Yeah. Ted Williams was a man who was obsessed. Obsessed with being the greatest hitter in baseball. He was so obsessed with being the greatest hitter in baseball that while he was playing in the outfield, while there were batters hitting the ball, he was thinking about, what am I going to do to hit the ball? What am I going to do to hit against this pitcher? What am I going to do to bring my bat speed up? He was so obsessed with being the best hitter that it's all he talked about with his teammates, and they got sick of it. They were tired of hearing it. They did not want to hear Ted Williams talk anymore about hitting the baseball. He was obsessed. Now, in 1941, he did what no other person in baseball has done before or since. He hit 406 for the season. For those of you who don't know baseball very well, what that means is that he hit safely, meaning he hit a single, a double, a triple, or a, or a home run a little more than four out of ten times up to bat. Now, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? That's like getting 40% on a test. That's supposed to be great? Well, in baseball, that actually is pretty good. You get paid big bucks today if you hit anywhere near 300, okay? Three out of 10 times. He went above and beyond. He was obsessed with being the greatest hitter. And whether for you it's a sporting thing, it's it's a job thing, it's a money thing, whatever, we all tend to define ourselves by the things that we want. Zacchaeus was like that. In our story, Jesus is passing through Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. And as he's passing through, we're introduced to this character. It almost seems just kind of accidentally. But this character named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus had a problem. And it wasn't just that he was short. He had a bigger problem. He was a chief tax collector. Now, I don't know anybody who loves to pay taxes. I don't know anyone who circles April 15th on their calendar and says, yes! None of us enjoy paying these things, right? I mean, we realize we've got roads, we've got fire departments, we've got police officers. We, there are, we see some benefits from them, but we don't enjoy paying them, right? I mean, tomorrow we're celebrating our independence, and that document, the, the Declaration of Independence, was signed primarily by a bunch of guys who hated paying taxes. They didn't want to have to pay. They wanted their independence. The nation wanted its independence. Now, you take that history, you take your dislike for paying taxes, you multiply it by a thousand, and you might get a little bit closer to how the Jews of Jesus' day felt about taxes and tax collectors. A chief tax collector in Jesus' day was somebody, a Jew, who contracted with the Roman government who had the Jewish people under its thumb, did not allow them to govern their own lives and how they did, went about life and whatever, okay? They were pretty oppressive. 
The Jews didn't get to be citizens for paying taxes. They just had to pay. The, the money went away. It went to Rome. But for the chief tax collector, he contracted with the Romans to collect these taxes. And not only did he contract with, with them to collect them, he recruited and hired other people to do the same thing. And then beyond that, they generally tended to, to collect more than even Rome required and pocketed the difference. So do you see Zacchaeus' problem? He is short, as the story says, but that's not the main issue. The main issue here is that he's a tax collector. He's turned his back on his people. He has gotten rich off of their misery. No wonder he ran for the tree. If he had decided to get into the cloud or crowd, quite frankly, he probably would have gotten knifed and nobody would have been the wiser for it. People did not like tax collectors. But Zacchaeus, as the tax collector, he defined himself by his wealth. That's why he did it. He wasn't forced to be a chief tax collector. He wanted wealth. He wanted the good life. That's how he defined himself. We all tend to define ourselves by the things that we want, and oftentimes those cost us. But here's the second thing we need to understand this morning. Jesus wants to give us a new identity. Jesus actually gives us a new identity. This story is really a micro story of the, of the big story that Jesus is about to embark on in terms of dying on the cross. And we see it in verse 5 here. When Jesus reached the spot, meaning where Zacchaeus was in the tree, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. See what Jesus just did? Remember, Zacchaeus is part of the problem. Zacchaeus is an oppressor. He's a colluder. He's in tight with Rome, and he's getting rich off of it. But Jesus invites himself to the colluder's house to stay and to eat. Now, a lot of us here probably wouldn't think much of this. This isn't a big deal. What's the big deal? He goes and has a meal with the guy. So what? Well, in this culture, this was a huge, huge deal. Because first of all, the people of Jericho, the crowd, would have already had a place chosen for Jesus to stay. But Jesus ignores their hospitality, and he goes and he sets up his own arrangements. You didn't do that. No matter how important you were, you didn't do that. You especially didn't do that with a sinner, with a tax collector. Now, eating a meal with someone meant that you were in good, right, healthy, wholesome, good, intimate relationship with them. It meant you were friends. And in this particular context, it meant that God loved Zacchaeus. And Jesus takes the anger of the crowd on himself. You, you begin to see they, their attention is at least momentarily shifted from their dislike of Zacchaeus 
to all of a sudden, Jesus, what are you doing? And, you know, as I was thinking about this this week, the closest thing I could come to kind of making this connection was um, a couple of months ago, two or three months ago now, a, a National Football League player tweeted about a particular issue. Shortly after uh, Osama bin Laden was killed by the Navy SEALs, uh, and he saw the news and people rejoicing and, you know, being happy about it and whatnot, he tweeted, what are we doing? Why should we, we shouldn't be rejoicing over this man's death? Now, I don't know about you, and I don't know about his politics or anything like that. That's not part of what I'm talking about here. But I remember where I was on 9-11. I remember that Tuesday morning. I was up, I was living in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I was getting ready to go for work, go to work, and as I was getting ready, I was also writing some checks to pay some bills and stick in the mail on my way out the door when the news came on and the towers began to collapse. I remember that. I remember the anger I, I felt. Now imagine being a family member of someone who lost their life in that tragedy. And the anger about that, the hurt about that, and then hearing somebody tell you, we should not be rejoicing over this man's death. This football player got a lot of backlash for it, and that's the closest thing I can, I can even come to, to make an example of what Jesus did here. He was telling the crowd, this guy who's the traitor is now my friend. This was an amazing gift of scandalous grace. This is why this passage is one of my favorites in the Bible. Jesus does something that is just, it just blows people away. That's the level of unpopularity Jesus was bringing on himself. That's what he was, and he was doing it on purpose. All for the sake of reaching out to this one man. Jesus wanted to give Zacchaeus a new identity, and he wants to give you and me a new identity too. But how do we do this? What's the application for it? Here we go. Jesus has grace for you. It's up to you to accept and share it. Jesus has grace for you, but it's up to you to accept and share it. In this story, we are actually invited to, to join with one or the other of, of two of the main characters. Jesus is the main character in this, but there are a couple of other characters that Luke brings up in this story that we're invited to align with, one or the other. Zacchaeus or the crowd. And as we see here in verse 8, this is how Zacchaeus is, this is Zacchaeus' response. The crowd was to mutter and to be disgusted. But Zacchaeus responds this way, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. 
For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus recognized the gift. He didn't just recognize it, though. He accepted it, and then he acted on it. The statement of paying back four times what was stolen comes from the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, where God requires any Israelite who steals a farm animal from another Israelite and then slaughters that animal to pay back four or five times the amount that that animal was worth. And the whole point of this is so that people would know what it means to be in good community with one another. Okay? It was for the sake of the community. By Zacchaeus' time, this particular law wasn't strictly enforced, and it certainly had no application for white-collar crime, like Zacchaeus's. And yet Zacchaeus takes this on himself because he's received this gift. And he says, now I'm going to share this gift. I'm changing. I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what this statement is all about. And Jesus' response is absolutely amazing. And the crowd is baffled by it. It makes no sense. Because Jesus calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham, and then he says, salvation has come to his house. Now, being a son of Abraham simply meant that you were physically of the line of Abraham. You were born a Jew. But beyond that, it also meant that you had the same character as Abraham. It meant you were in an obedient, trusting, loving relationship with God, and that God had favor on you. crowd would have been muttering a lot more at this. Further, Jesus says salvation has come. Salvation was reserved only for the righteous, for those who had been faithful to God and to the community. And that did not fit Zacchaeus. Jesus goes on and he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He's quoting from the Old Testament where God says, I myself am going to come and I am going to shepherd my people Israel. I'm going to rescue them from their oppressive internal leaders who have led them astray, who have taken them places I never intended for them to go. But in this story in Luke 19, who's the oppressor? It's Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is the oppressor, and yet Jesus offers this extravagant, scandalous grace to him. In the eyes of the community, Zacchaeus didn't fit anything of what Jesus had said, and yet Jesus extends that grace to him. And Zacchaeus is now identified in the story as a member of God's people, in right standing. Now listen to me very carefully. It doesn't matter what you've said or what you haven't said. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you haven't done. God wants you to be defined by, his, by your relationship with him. Let me say that again. God wants you to be defined by your relationship with him. Maybe you're here this morning and you're nowhere near having your, your life defined by that relationship. 
As a matter of fact, maybe your life is more defined by your lack of relationship with God. I'm here to tell you that God has grace. Jesus is extending grace to you. Not because, oh, well, you know, this is just what I'm doing, and, but because he wants to. Jesus himself said, I came to seek and to save the lost. That same scandalous grace that Jesus had for Zacchaeus is available for you. Maybe, maybe you've been an oppressor. Maybe you've taken advantage of family members or co-workers or friends. Jesus has grace. Will you accept it? Maybe you've been on the oppressed end. Maybe you've been taken advantage of and you just want your oppressors to, quite frankly, burn. Jesus has grace for you too. Will you accept it? Here's the deal for all of us, guys. We get to choose. Are we going to be like Zacchaeus or are we going to be like the crowd? That's not easy. And I'm not here to manipulate your feelings and, and to, to say, oh, everything's going to be hunky-dory when you accept Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. The fact of the matter is that following Jesus is a decision and it is something where I decide I am no longer going to rule my life. I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving the right to call the shots over to, to, to Jesus. I'm following him. I'm going to be obedient to him wherever he leads. But the fact remains that Jesus is offering, will you accept? If you've been a Christ follower for any length of time, more than about four seconds, you know that it's easy to become judgmental. You know that it's easy to begin to look down on people, whether it's for the way they dress, for the words they say, for how they do or don't do things in church or at home or whatever. Jesus calls us to something entirely different. He calls us to a radical discipleship empowered by the Spirit and founded in love. And the way we begin to live that is to begin to accept the grace that He has. Don't get me wrong, the Bible is clear about speaking the truth in love. It's clear about judging between what is right and wrong, but every time the Bible talks about you and me, anybody who's a Christ follower going to another Christ follower and saying, look, you're, you're messing up here, it is always, 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 always with restoration, with reconciliation in view. Never, ever condemnation. Not ever. I want to look at, real quick, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. They say this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I want to break that verse down just real quickly here. We're God's handiwork. Basically, we're God's poem. Anybody here who is a Christ follower is God's poem. We're, we're God's music in and to the world. Demonstrating to the world God's new way of being human. That's what we're created in Christ Jesus for. Verse 11, Therefore, because of this, 
Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. In other words, for those who formerly were outsiders. Verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. There's a happy picture for you. But then Paul goes on with one of my favorite theological words in the whole Bible. But. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The whole idea here, guys, is that God has done this. I was once far away, but God has brought me near. It's up to each of us to accept that grace, and then to live it, to partner with God, to be like our master. That's what it means to be defined by relationship with God. One thing I didn't tell you about that trip I took with Rick Lewis in the beginning of our our friendship, years later, he told me that I was not the first student that he had invited to go to Montana. I was simply the first one who accepted guys, we can't do anything with the grace God has until we accept it. My life hasn't been the same since I accepted that grace. Let me ask you this. What would your life be like if you were to live in that grace, to accept that grace? How would your life be different? Not easy. I'm not talking about easy. I'm talking about different. What would your life look like as you are partnering with God and God's people to show the world who God is? What would your life be like? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for today. God, thank you for your love that you have lavished on us. Lord, that's something that we get to hang on to, as your word says in 1 John. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we are called children of God, and that is what we are. Father, I pray that for every single Christ follower in this room, that we would all be intensely aware of your love. And God, that we would be defined by your love, by, by our relationship with you so that we can partner with you in doing what you're doing, in offering grace where otherwise grace would not be offered. Help us to do that, I pray. God, give us the courage we need to do that. Lord, if there's anybody here who's really wrestling with the fact that you give grace even to bullies, Father, I pray that you would just pour your love into their hearts and their minds right now. Let them see you. Let them know your touch, your love, your grace for them. If you're here this morning and you have not yet begun your life as a Christ follower, 
I'm going to say just a simple prayer here. You don't have to stand or come forward or anything like that. We're not going to single you out. But just make these words yours. Father, I need the grace you have. I want my life to be defined by relationship with you. I want to get in on the stuff that you're doing. I want to be that handiwork. Forgive me. Forgive me for everything I've done to push you away, to push others away. And help me to walk in your new life. Jesus, for anybody here who has said that prayer this morning, who made that their own, I pray right now that you would give them your spirit to encourage and to guide. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving, for offering your grace to each and every one of us. Help us, Lord, to live in that grace and and to walk in life through that grace and to extend it to others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you all stand with me? The ushers are gonna come forward and we're gonna take our morning offering. If you're new here or visiting, feel free to let the offering bag pass by. If you, are, if you call East Point Church your home, please, um, please do give. I ask that unashamedly, not, not to force or anything like that, but just as an act of love and worship to God. Let's sing the song and then I'll be right back up. All right, well, if you became a Christ follower this morning for the first time, I want to invite you uh, at the back tables by the doors, there's a new believer packet. Pick up one of these. There's a New Testament in there and some information about East Point and how to get plugged in and all of that. But then also tell somebody. This is one of the greatest things that we as Christ followers love to hear about is new people coming into the family. Uh, on either side of the building here or the auditorium is a place to be able to take communion where you can remember what Jesus has done for you and also express part of this relationship you have with him. So you can take that if you want to. If you need prayer, come forward. The uh, prayer team will be up front and you can receive prayer. Thanks for coming. Have a good and safe fourth. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week.